Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won best picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. With Rebecca Ford. Hi. And David Canfield. Hello. We hope that you are listening to this in the cozy confines of wherever you are spending your holiday season, maybe with a stack of virtual screeners next to you catching up on movies. We are recording this early uh, because we are taking some time off. So we don't have a ton of big news to hit. Hopefully there is no big news that we are missing. Um, But we have two great interviews to share with you. We have David's conversation with Nina Arianda about being the Ricardos and our colleague Julie Miller talking to Pablo Lorraine and Kristen Stewart about Spencer. And then amongst us, because we can't talk about the news, we decided to talk about West Side Story. Uh, obviously, there is a new West Side Story that is out that we have talked about in in some good amount of detail already. Um, but we all took the opportunity to look back at the 1961, I was going to say original, but it was a musical ahead of time on Broadway, we all know, and just look back at it. For me, it was the first time I had watched the entire thing in a really long time, even though I feel like the musical is kind of embedded in my DNA. Um, it's a famous Oscar winner. It is widely regarded as maybe one of the best, best picture winners of all time. I, maybe we'll look up a list of those. So let's talk about the old West Side Story. I, I wanted to start by asking you guys what your personal West Side Story history is, like what this musical means to you. And um, Richard is maybe our, our frequent Broadway correspondent. I'll start with you. What, what is West Side Story to you? Um, It was one of the first musicals that I was familiar with. Um, My father had taken my sister to a production of Carousel at uh, a local high school, and she came back just like wide-eyed about musicals. And so my dad went and found all these old records for like South Pacific and Carousel and West Side Story. And that one, because it was a little more modern, uh, was the one that really stuck in my head uh, for many years. And I, But I don't think I saw the film until much later. I kind of only knew West Side Story from that um, Broadway recording. But yeah, it, it, it looms large in, in my head for a variety of reasons. You know, there's just some really perfect songs in this. And um, rewatching the old movie uh, was a reminder of like, they've been perfect since the very beginning. It's nothing mm-hmm. that Steven Spielberg, you know, edited into into greatness. Yeah. David, how about you? Yeah, I didn't watch it in childhood, actually. So I watched this as a teenager as part of my personal film education as I as I got into 
movies and I loved it. And uh, I, at the time did not identify at all as someone who liked musicals. So it was, it was a big deal for me in that regard. It's like, Oh, I can be <laughs> incredibly into uh, songs like this. And I, I kind of kept it to myself because I, I kind of viewed them as uncool as well at the time. So it was a private thing that I liked. You needed a better theater program at your high school. I, clearly. I, I did. I did. <laughs> uh, and then as I got to college, it kind of blossomed into a more, um, I realized there, there was no shame about it. And in fact, it is considered a great film. So that, that was my journey with it. And then I, I rewatched it before the new one. Um, and it held up quite well. Uh, Rebecca, what was your high school theater program like? Did it let you like West Side Story? Well, I I watched it as a kid. My parents didn't let us watch a ton of TV, but VHS was approved. So this was one of like a handful of movies we had. And I must have seen it like 40 times as a, a kid. I, it's definitely the musical that made me love musicals. And, you know, I, I loved everything about it. I think I had the entire movie memorized at a certain point. So, <laughs> but I hadn't watched it again until maybe a couple years ago. I made my husband watch it, um, you know, because we couldn't be together if he hadn't seen and appreciated it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it was it was a, a really important part of my youth for sure. Um, Rebecca, since you brought up your husband, I now get to brag about mine, who played Tony in his middle school production of West Side Story. Uh, I have never seen the video of this, which I kills me. Like, I would love to see it so much. Um, but it, that, may, that may be no small part of how we got married, which is that he had like a musicals background um, when we met. Because I think my experience was more like yours, Rebecca, where it was just kind of like in the ether of my childhood. Like we had VHS copies of uh, Oklahoma, The Music Man, The Sound of Music and, and West Side Story, which I guess was maybe the slightly more grown up of of the group of those. Um, so it's almost like I can't remember not having known about it. Um, mm -hmm. But it also made it for a really interesting rewatch for me. And I had rewatched parts of it. I've, I've tried showing my kids like the opening song and the Jets song and kind of the most uh, dynamic parts to get them to like have musicals embedded in their lives the way that I do. Um, but as an entire movie, it had been a really long time. Everything you guys have said, it just made me think of this movie's reputation as kind of the musical for people who don't necessarily think they like musicals. Yep. Rewatching it or just as like a general sense, like, why is it? What is it about this story, this music, the way the 61 movie was made that that gets people even when they don't think they can be gotten? I can try to answer that as, as the person who was gotten. By <laughs> there was something about everyone dancing in the streets <laughs> and breaking out into numbers that felt that kind of broke the wall for me where I think a lot of people have this hang up of people who don't like musicals have a hang up of, well, why are they just breaking into song and dance out of nowhere? Like, it doesn't make sense. And there's something about this movie's overall sense of just how, how well they're weaved into the story and into the, into the characters lives that made it easier for me to get rid of that hang up. And I, that's the best way I can explain it, which is not very well, but there was something about it that allowed me to kind of suspend that cynicism that I'd had mm -hmm. about it and just enjoy it. And also to Richard's point, the songs are just so good that it's hard not to fall into it <laughs> uh, in a way where maybe even with a slightly lesser musical, that's still really good that I would sing now that I like back then I would, I would still have that kind of cynical distance from it. Yeah, what do the kids say now? No skips on uh, on West Side Story. Like every single song really holds its own. Yeah, 
you know, speaking of skips, it's funny. Uh, on the record, we had there was a scratch on it, and it would skip during something's coming, which is kind of ironic. <laughs> Tony <laughs> Tony would get stuck while sing, singing about the future. <laughs> I think it's also the 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 appeal of it is the way that it mixes grittiness that still feels gritty enough watching the, the 61 film today mm-hmm. but then i think was much more like urgent it's that mix of that with the elegance of of the music and jerome robinson's choreography and this classic shakespearean and pre-shakespearean story uh of young love you know torn asunder um it's it's the way it mixes classical with the modern and also, unlike a lot of, you know, the Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals and all that, it, West Side Story is not really deliberately corny, you know? It it, mm-hmm. it it is taking this matter very seriously. It has fun, but there's something sort of somber and and, and serious about it that uh, feels new, even watching it now, you know, thinking about where, where it was in musical history. It was bold in its way. Yeah, you think about it winning Best Picture, I think, two or three years after Gigi, which is just such a more traditional like MGM studio in the mm-hmm. giant soundstage musical. Um, it's so it's so radical for for the period that it was in. And, and you know, it's before Sound of Music, which was radical for, you know, filming in Salzburg and everything. But the the seriousness and the gritty, grittiness of it, like you say, Richard, which I think is really highlighted very effectively in the new one. Um, but you kind of can't discount what the original does, too. Yeah, rewatching the old one, it 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 was striking. So I rewatched the old one after I watched the new one. I don't know really mm-hmm. what my strategy was for that, but um, it's really striking how the new one is not trying to correct the old one. It's in, it's it's really in an interesting conversation with it, you know, mm-hmm. um, because watching the sixty one version, it's like there's so much technique used that you that that feels still new and exciting now i'm thinking even of the end credits where they're scratched on you know city walls mm-hmm. or or the opening shots the these I, i'm assuming helicopter shots of of this you know of manhattan and 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 it that feels so bracingly contemporary um that like spielberg had had to work from that sense of modernity instead of trying to add a sense of modernity, if that makes any sense. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I think the movies really, and I said this in my review, really exist alongside each other very well without kind of saying, oh, that one's better or that one's worse. It's pretty rare. It is crazy that... I was among the skeptics of the new one, thinking like, oh, we just can't do it again. But Broadway shows are redone all the time. Like, Richard, how many West Side Stories have you seen on Broadway in the last, like, 15 years? Like, there's been a bunch. So why wouldn't you try and interpret it again? Um, I think I was too literal about it, and a lot of us were. I was the same, Katie. And I feel like, for me, it was just the risk that they would ruin it. You know, I hold this 61 film in such high esteem. And... And I was so scared this was going to be a terrible new version and that it would also be introducing maybe younger audiences to to this as the West Side Story, you know. So, I'm, I mean, I'm so happy they pulled it off the way they did and the way Richard describes it. But I had the same feeling where I, where I was like, do not touch this movie. And, I, <laughs> and, I, and, you know, the things that we can think about now, you know, in in as a modern audience that are troubling with the casting of the original i mean they really they really like beefed up a lot of the storytelling in a way that i think really works so here's where i took the opportunity to maybe criticize the original because having seen the new one and then like seen people kind of come out of the woodwork to be like well you know these parts of the original aren't that great there is a staginess to it that i 
think I'm not just seeing through modern eyes. You know, what Spielberg does with his camera in the new one is possible because of technology and also because of the film language that Spielberg himself has created for Hollywood in the last 40 years. Um, but think something about like tonight where it's Tony Maria standing on the fire escape and they there's a part where they just kind of stand next to each other and sing and the camera just like fades out on the sides to try to get, give something visually interesting. But otherwise, they're just standing there. Did, did this stick out to any of you guys watching it that like, oh, you you don't have to just leave the camera on everyone as they're singing? Because <laughs> it's, it's yeah. not like that in yeah. every scene, but there are certainly <laughs> moments like it in, in the original. Yeah, it's funny how some of it does feel very stagey. And yet there are also moments where like Maria twirls and then the colors get weird and then it yeah. becomes the dance. You know, they're, 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 so it's funny that that Wise and Robbins were like, we, we can do stuff like that, but we also have to also shoot in this very traditional way. And um, it, it's funny that like where you see that sort of excitingly new technique, aerial shots and, you know, fade ins, you know, into a dance or whatever, that they weren't they didn't just apply that to everything, you know? Yeah. Well, you wonder if part of it's because of uh, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins as co-directors was not like a natural fit from from everything that you hear about it. You know, Jerome Robbins was a choreographer. He directed on Broadway and they brought in Robert Wise basically because he had made a movie before. And then uh, they fired Jerome Robbins. And I, you, you can imagine some of that push pull just happening because of, of everything that was going on on the set. And Robbins and Wise, their kids were in love and it was causing a lot of tension. (laughs) (laughs) If only they could have gotten that figured out how much better could I mean, this movie could have been even better than it is. Um, Was there anything that rewatching that like was even better than you guys remembered? Rita. Mm. Um, And and not to say that Ariana DeBose is not amazing in the part in the new one, but it really does. It's such an incredible role and it really stands up as one of my favorite wins in that category ever. I mean, it's just such a dynamic, alive, funny, and then heartbreaking performance. And and just the way she's talked about it over the years, there's just, there's so much weight to it uh, that it was really, I was really affected rewatching it, knowing what it's represented to her over her career. Um, Wait, in what way? Like, what is it that she said? Well, I mean, talking about her experiences in Hollywood and she did a big 60 Minutes profile and um, she didn't, (laughs) <laughs> you know, she wasn't, she didn't have the kind of career that uh, any Latina actress could have at that point. And, and so getting this role was huge for her. And mm-hmm. um, even there was, even with that, the kind of degradation of having to do the darker makeup and, um, you know, playing opposite George Kiris, uh, there was, there is a very complicated time in her career. And yet it was the kind of, it was the role of a lifetime. And, and there's a lot of complexity to that, um, that she's, spent her last few years really unpacking in interviews um, in a kind of fascinating way. And I was just having all that in my head, rewatching it and just seeing how brilliant she was in the part. uh, I was pretty Mm -hmm. affected by that. I also rewatched her um, getting the Oscar as we were preparing this. Yes, me too. too. (laughs) And she says like 11 words. She's like, I can't believe it. Good Lord. I leave you with that or something. And it's just like (laughs) the most adorable speech, like, she just yeah. has so much joy. I, I thought that was really fun to rewatch. Yeah, both she and George were pretty shocked. Mm-hmm. Well, and Rebecca, you spoke to um, the woman who was the consultant on the new West Side Story who um, is from Puerto Rico. And she saw the, you know, I don't know how she was in 1961, but she saw the original movie and kind of had a similarly complex reaction, right? Like, I think for, for a lot of people, it was like, here we are on screen, but not not fully. Yeah, I mean, it was interesting because she really made the point that at that time, she just felt so grateful to see 
you know, herself or someone who came from where she came from on screen at all, you know, so it's sort of a like beggars can't be choosers situation. So she had no, um, you know, issues with, you know, many of the actors not being um, Latino at all or or the, you know, makeup that was used on Rita, any of those things. She was just like, my story or something like my story is on screen. And then she went on to explain that, you know, the younger generations have have been able to criticize it more openly because she felt like, you know, there is slightly more opportunity and they can ask and demand more. And and, you know, she is really proud of being able to help out on on this new version. Um, but it was interesting just to sort of hear her perspective of what it was like to see that, you know, back in 61 and and that experience for her. Yeah. I saw um, Joyce Carol Oates, of all people, uh, weighing in on the should Natalie would have been Maria discourse, which mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, whenever I start a sentence like that, we should all just run away. Um, but mm-hmm. I did think a lot about Natalie Wood watching this because I think she has rightfully, you know, gotten criticism for playing a Puerto Rican woman when she was not Puerto Rican. Um, but she, she's really good in this movie. I, do you guys struggle with this in the same way that I do, where, like, I want to give her credit while acknowledging that they could have done better with with casting this role? She couldn't sing, though. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't sing. That's true. Though she thought she was going to sing, right? I mean, yes. she wasn't told she was going to be completely dubbed. So I just feel like it's hard because she is the face of it, and, and she gets all the blame but you know she was a young actress who had a huge opportunity for a a huge role and um, she thought she was going to sing so and they were never going to like they wanted a name for that right so like it's not like if she had turned it down they would have there was like a Puerto Rican actress who would have gotten it instead like not again like that's it's weird like history blaming there but right um it would be different now obviously yes yes and it it has been thankfully Yeah. yeah we can't hold her to the standards of 2021 you know yeah and i think in like those the dramatic scenes especially as you get to the end i mean i just like stun myself by crying at the end of west side story every Mm -hmm. single time i watch it um because it's so heartbreaking what she manages to do that final scene and rachel zegler in the new one i think really matches that level um which is so hard to play that level of like absolute heartbreak and you know anger um and they both do so well with it I think the line, uh, Arthur Lawrence right, uh, wrote the script, um, the line, I have hate now, is so mm-hmm. powerful because you kind of didn't realize that that was in some senses Maria's arc. You you think, oh, it's about her falling in love with Tony and, you know, defying the wishes of her family. But really, it's an extra tragedy because it's not just about this young love cut short and Tony dying. It's about... Maria losing not sort of girlish innocence, in, innocence, but like human innocence, you know, like mm. she the the world got even to her and she has stood in this movie as this totem of like, yes, youthful impetuousness, but decency throughout the whole thing. And then at the end, she's like, well, that's that's it now. You corrupted me. I'm one of you now, sort of. <laughs> yeah. One of you, but also still um, seeing through kind of this gun bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the arc that they, um, I think Anita has more of in the new one, too, of being really disillusioned by it. Um, You know, the scene at docks with Anita and the Jets is really disturbing in both of them. Um, Kind of, I I had not remembered how disturbing the original one was, but the way they deal with it in the new one where she's, you know, she goes from the person who sang America to to where she is in that. That's another heartbreaking turn for a character. And I love the, in the new one. That, that to me was where the use of the new character that Rita plays um, was mm-hmm. most effect was most effective. It just gave that scene incredible weight. 
um, her walking in on that scene and kind of having to wrestle with <laughs> what place she's taken in the community. And uh, yeah, I, I was really moved by that. So yeah. Um, I wanted to point to a piece that was in Slate that went up, um, I think maybe you know, it went up in sometime in mid-December, that Isaac Butler wrote talking to Tony Kushner about anybody's and about how that character evolved from this kind of oddball tomboy in the original movie to an explicitly trans character in the new one. Um, and there's there's a lot to get into about it. They kind of tried to figure out why anybody's is in the original at all. And one of the theories is that there was um, a woman who was a dancer who um, Jerome Robbins worked with a lot on Cheryl Crawford, who he wanted to have a part for her in the show, so wrote Anybody's. Um, and then they talked to the person who plays Anybody's in the new one, whose uh, name is Iris Minas, and just about how they looked into how a trans person would have existed in the late 50s and how they would have fit into it. It's just a fascinating read and a, a really interesting example of how they've updated the story. Um, did anybody stick out to you guys on rewatches? Like, how did this person wind up in, in this world? Well, I mean, he's good in the role, but it's like, why is this Greek guy playing Bernardo? <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, um, yeah. but it, it is it is interesting with the anybody's question, like that watching the, the, the move, the older movie, it's like they were so close. Like they knew that they wanted to present stuff that was perhaps hinting at the transgressive or maybe was transgressing actually, um, you know, not just anybody's, but, you know, the, the lines in, in America were, you know, talking about, well, yeah, if you're white, you know, they're, they're talking explicitly mm -hmm. about racism. But then in the end, it becomes kind of like a both sidesy, like, you know, everyone's at fault and it's just about teenage gang warfare. And it is about that. But like, I think what, uh, what, what, in terms of what the new one did in, in conversation with the old one is, is tease that out more, like really what we're talking Talking about because they can, you know, the, the, there aren't these sort of um, serious codes about what you can show in movies or what was palatable at the time. Um, so it's heartening in a strange way to see the 61 movie, at least for its day, trying to think about that stuff. But it's also sad that they couldn't push it further toward reality, I guess. I was thinking about that line in G. Officer Krupke, um, I, you know, my sister wears a mustache, my brother wears a dress, and how it stays in the new one, and I kind of wondered if that was something that they would cut, but I, I think, honestly, more than anything, it, that's part of that transgressive, you know, here's the world outside of this slightly sanitized world we can present to you in Hollywood, and I'm kind of grateful it's in both. There are definitely points where I'm. you can feel that, oh, it's like, oh, a gay man wrote these lyrics. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Speaking of reevaluating the leads, I felt like Richard Boehmer has gotten way more shit than he deserves over the years as Tony. Um, he's not the most dynamic person in the movie, but I thought he was pretty good looking back at it. Did you Did you guys did he stand up for you at all? Yes, partly because I think Ansel Elgort is the the weak the weak link <laughs> of the new one, and watching them back to back, you do notice that it it's just the least interesting character of the main group and yeah there's not a ton that can be done with it so yeah i, I had a greater appreciation for what he was able to do in it uh, the second time through yeah i felt the same way with it. it i think because now we have two examples of it 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 as david is saying it's just not the most interesting role but i also appreciated his performance and i know it's not him singing but i i just love the maria number yeah anyway, so i'll, I'll, I'll appreciate it no matter what I feel like that's the one that I catch myself singing around my house with mm -hmm. with new lyrics more than, than anything else in this show. 
Um, yeah, my heart just belongs to Russ Tamblin so thoroughly, and I was so um, convinced that no one could do riff as well. But obviously, Mike Feist, I loved too. Um, but yeah, he just Russ Tamblin does way more backflips in the original West Side Story than I even remembered. And every time, it's like this small miracle that he manages to pull that off. Uh, one thing that the rewatch of the older version did um, confirm for me, because I had kind of groused about it in my review of the new one, is that like Maria and Tony really should sing somewhere. <laughs> and mm. I, I know that Moreno's great and they wanted to give her a moment and and, it, and she sells it. Um, the movie sells that moment as well as it can. But the having Maria and Tony sing it as, as one of their you know great love songs and then to have it recur in a, in a sort of breathy, ragged fashion at the very end is really powerful. And I think the new version is missing that moment. Well, both moments, the, the the actual song and then Maria's sort of, you know, weeping reprise of it uh, yeah. over Tony's body. Yeah, agreed. You miss you miss a beat in their relationship, too. That's pretty yeah. crucial. And if people have never seen video of this, um, you can just Google it that there is, uh, I think it's the one train in New York where the when the air brakes go on, it plays the first three notes of somewhere. Um, and it's great. You should just find it because it's like this little magical Broadway thing that exists in, in the gross subways of New York City and feels <laughs> brought to you directly from Leonard Bernstein. I have never noticed that before. Wait, is oh, that, really? has that always been a thing? It's like I someone had mentioned it. And I feel like the New York Times like does a little like you know, about town thing about it every couple of years. So yeah, like Google like somewhere New York subway. I think you'll probably find it. I'm going to hop on the one train. Yeah, go ride that train in Times Square and uh, just sing Maria and scatter some flocks of pigeons around while you're yeah. while you're at it. Well masked. <laughs> yes, please. Um, all right, final thought, everybody. Should everyone rewatch original West Side Story uh, either before or after the new one? I think, I imagine we all vote yes. Anytime, every time. <laughs> <laughs> And then if you want to cry, get to the end. And if you want to not, just stop at America. And it's a um, it's a very happy experience. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, Katie, a middle school production of West Side Story, does that just end at the dance? Like, what? I don't know, honestly. I, again, I still haven't gotten to see it. So I need I, I have to imagine they cut something. I mean, again, let's like let's not talk about like who was cast to play which ethnicity at this um, primarily Jewish middle school in Michigan. So um, there's a lot of questions. I, I'll try to come back in the new year and um, and have some answers for you there. I just want to find out if they, you know, put makeup on the the uh, actors to make them Ugh. darker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's why I haven't been shown the video. <laughs> yeah, they were like, burn this. And now we're going to hear from David and his conversation with Nina Arianda, who is a Broadway star and is a real standout in Being the Ricardos, playing Vivian Vance, who played Ethel on I Love Lucy. And as you can see in the movie, really wasn't much like Ethel and really pushed against that pigeonholing that she had, even in the role that really made her famous. And Nina Arianda talks about why, as an actress, she may be related to not wanting to be boxed into one thing. So let's hear from that interview. I'm joined now by Nina Arianda, who plays Vivian Vance in the new film Being the Ricardos, which takes a week-long look at the making of I Love Lucy and zeroes in on uh, Lucy and Desi's marriage. Hello, Nina. Hi. I love your performance in this movie. I love the particular supporting look at you and uh, 
J.K. Simmons, uh, which you know, we both get a lot to do in this film. And, and I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about uh, your background in getting cast here. Aaron Sorkin has said he had you in mind in part because of Viv- Vivian Vance's own pre-Lucy career as a successful stage actor, which I personally was not aware of. Um, were you aware of it? No, no. Embarrassingly enough, I, I really didn't know very much about Vivian Vance at all. So it was very cool and very exciting to be able to do the research on this. Yeah. What did you learn about her that perhaps you didn't... I I guess I should start by saying, what was your familiarity with I Love Lucy? And and how did that contrast with with what you learned later on? Yeah. I mean, I grew up watching reruns. I didn't have cable. And somehow on network TV on the East Coast, we had a lot of older shows that would do reruns. So I was Mm -hmm. very familiar with it as a child and really loved the show. And even before that, um, when my family came to the United States, there was one family member, an uncle, who was the only one who had a television. (laughs) And so once a week, the entire family would gather at his house uh, and they would watch I Love Lucy. And I mean, nobody spoke English. So I think it just goes to show kind of the strength and and the power of the of the series. Um, Mm. And what did I what's the biggest thing I I learned in the research is that the one thing that Vivian is very much not is Ethel. Mm. And I didn't know that. Um, And, you know, this is a woman who had an extensive and successful theater career. She was a very famous torch singer. Uh, She was a leading lady. You know, she was this ingenue. And then having having known that it just it makes so much sense this sort of frustration and struggle that she has in the story in the film and then playing Ethel yeah yeah it it really does i'm curious how she struck you on the page um having had that really general familiarity like was it an initial sort of reaction to this character and seeing the woman behind her in a, in a different way or what what about her in the script did you first connect with having known now at this point reading the script a little bit more about her background the rest the internal kind of wrestling match that mm-hmm. Vivian goes through in the film was much clearer to me, you know, these two sides that she was struggling with. And that's the thing that really popped off the page that I felt was, what a treat to sink your teeth into that. How did you go back to the show? Did you see it anew? Did you see the performance in a different way at all? Yes, yes and and no, because I think for me it's, I'm so, I, I so love those characters, you know. And they just take you into a completely different place when you watch it. But yes, yeah. knowing a little more about it, I even have more admiration for her complete transformation as Ethel, because it really was just a complete mm-hmm. transformation for her. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, how did you find operating between the character and the role? I mean, one of the interesting things about this movie is you get two sides of this person, the one who presents for the camera and the one who kind of lives with that burden off camera. Right. So what was what was that playing those two sides like? Anytime you get to do more than one thing, I mean, you're lucky if you get to do five things, but if you get to do more than one thing, that's, that's, that's actor candy, you know? Um, And it creates more problems for you as an actor, which is exactly what you want. So generally, uh, and in this case, I love the whole thing of going into something that others expect of you and that you're good at. Mm-hmm. And then landing back home with yourself where maybe you're just a little bit unhappy. <laughs> so it was kind of, it was, it was fun riding that elevator. Mm. 
the dynamic between you and J.K. Simmons in this film surprised me, given what I didn't know about uh, the relationship between uh, these two actors, which is that they didn't like each other off screen (laughs) as much as they didn't like each other on screen. Um, How did you find working with J.K. and and the, the, the layers of animosity, I suppose, in that dynamic? How did you find that? Well, let me just start by saying I recently read something. I don't know how I didn't read this during the research, but... And then again, what do I know? This is a rumor. But apparently, when news was, uh, when the news came to Vivian that Fred had passed, she said something like "champagne for everyone." I mean, <laughs> to that extent of that's the that's how how much Ooh. they disliked each other. I know that's brutal. Who knows? Maybe that's not true. But it's a good story, though. Um, <laughs> How did I go about it? Um, well, it's very. It was. It was difficult. Maybe the hardest part because it really is difficult to dislike J.K. I think it's impossible not to love him. <laughs> He's such a fantastic gentleman, and what a brilliant, you know, playmate. Um, but in a way, it helped. I, in a way, I think it helped their work. Yeah. Because as much as they disliked each other, and I think Aaron did such a wonderful job of like placing those breadcrumbs within the script, you do understand that they did, reluctantly even maybe, respected one another as performers. Hmm. Yeah, you do get that sense as well, um, because when it comes down to the table reads, they do they do the work and they're really great. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's how that was the first thing that we had shot was the table read. So we went, you know, guns blazing into this whole thing, um, JK and I. So we set the tone right there for each other as far as what the characters are really going to get into for the rest of the film. <laughs> um, I, I heard you share a rumor, another rumor about um, one thing that Vivian made, made a comment mm-hmm. uh, about being paired with this much older man in, in this story and and how that upset her uh, mm-hmm. and how he heard it and, and off we go. Um, right. But I'm curious, you know, in this movie, the way Hollywood has historically treated women is, is, a, is a theme in several areas, including this one, um, including Vivian's story. How did that resonate for you? learning that part of her backstory and seeing the Lucy side of it as well and and kind of telling that story, which is very much about the industry that this film is made in. I think being part of the studio system was hard enough. Being a woman in the studio system was brutal. Yeah. Whether it's having to claw and cut your way in and out of situations like Lucy did mm-hmm. or having to kind of mourn who you were and who you still are and never be allowed to dip your toe back into those waters like Vivian had to do. Mm-hmm. In general, I think being boxed in in any way is extremely painful, especially mm-hmm. if you yourself feel like you so desperately want to share more of yourself or other sides of yourself or you know your outlet is completely cut short. And that's really tough. I mean, that's I mean, that's more Vivian's storyline. But sure, if it weren't they to say they paved the way for us is like you know understatement of whatever rest of the year we have left. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you find that you want to push back against getting boxed in at all? I mean, what 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 for you is in in terms of that experience? Do you relate to that at all? I 100% relate to that. I think, to me, it's one of the worst things that could possibly happen. 
uh, is to be one thing mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. to be not, I'm not even saying known as one thing, just in general, to be told that you're one thing mm-hmm. and to have to comply. I, I think that's a nightmare, honestly. Yeah. At this stage in your career, I, I am more, was more familiar with your stage work a few years ago. You've done a lot of screen more recently. What's that balance like for you now? I imagine that plays into the not just being one thing conversation. Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could either know everything or you could always be a student. And for me, I hope I never know everything. <laughs> so having the opportunity to to learn more about this media uh, has been uh, very cool for me. And mm-hmm. it's two very different things. And I, I do miss theater very much. That's my church, you know. Yeah. But uh, what a cool way to learn about focus and, you know, pacing yourself in a completely different way. Yeah. On this film particularly, you're surrounded by people who know this medium very well, who've worked in it for a long time. Yeah. Um, what was it like just be, you know, beyond JK being a part of that ensemble? Um, and, and I imagine there's a mix of absorbing and playing off each other and things like that. Yeah. The whole thing is a masterclass. You get to see how, how people attack the work the professionalism that they bring to the table. You know, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time just just to see how everyone came so prepared and yet malleable, you know? You Mm -hmm. can know everything you want to know, but then if you don't take that knowledge and say, you know, bend me, if you will, um, then, you know, you're not doing the right thing. And in this case, everyone came, all you know, without an ego and very willing to play and everyone served the piece. You mentioned missing stage a little bit. Um, I'm curious for your perspective on Broadway just coming back and the energy of that whole world coming back. And do you feel an extra desire maybe to go back to that world right now, given the the you know this it was in such a precarious time for a while there. Oh yeah. Uh, well, my desire never waned, uh, with or without the pandemic. I think what I'm most excited about now is finally everyone gets to go back to work, you know? Mm -hmm. And of course the actors, of course, but I mean, hair, makeup, costumes, our ticket takers, our ushers, you know, everyone that that loved being in that environment as much as we love performing in it, you know, just to everyone have their jobs back. And uh, that makes me the happiest right now. Mm. I believe we're, uh, next year will be the 10th anniversary of your first screen credit. And I'm curious. Is that true? I think it is. I'm curious if you could look back at that time ten years ago versus now. How would you say you've grown as an actor, particularly for the screen? Oh my God, I don't know. I think. Listen, I'll never in my life, never have in my life, I ever said, "Look, you nailed that." Never. (laughs) I'm never happy. I'm never satisfied with what I do, what I've done, whatever. There's always room to be better or improve or learn more. But if I were to look back and say something to my 10 years ago self, I'd say apply a little more Declan Donnellan in the sense of you're nervous, you're this, you're that. Make it about the other person more. Make it about the thing you're doing more. Be a little easier with just getting over your own anxiety and focus on the other person, what you're doing, what you're saying. And you'll have a lot more fun. Because if the goal of this isn't to disappear, mm-hmm. right, into somebody else, then why would I, as a grown woman, play make-believe for a living? I mean, <laughs> the, pleasure, the pleasure is 
in the disappearing, in the connection as another person with another person. So calm down, nobody cares, make it about what you're doing and not about your feelings. Yeah. One of my favorite scenes in the, in the whole movie is uh, that beautiful moment you have with Nicole near the end where I think it's the moment that your character really gets to explain herself, to, mm-hmm. to, sh- to present this side because there have been little hints about what she's been going through throughout the film. Can you talk a little bit without spoiling too much, preparing for that scene, filming that scene, um, and, and really giving Vivian this kind of, you know, mini showcase almost. I think for every character involved in that scene, uh, whether it's Lucille and Vivian in the beginning, then joined by Madeline, then joined by JK, it is in one way or another, everyone's come to Jesus moment. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that it happens before showtime. You know, it's almost like don't go to bed angry. If you know what I mean? It feels like this is their don't go to bed angry moment. And all the truths come out in the kindest and most compassionate way. It's not out of fear. It's not out of anything. It's out of absolute love for one another and compassion. And again, the breadcrumbs with William and Vivian, Mm -hmm. you get a glimpse of how they do respect each other in that moment. But it is a moment where they're each able to be seen. Mm But the stakes are high, and again, with Aaron Sorkin's scripts, and this one in particular, boy, are the stakes high at every turn in the story, and this is no exception, because even though it's a warm moment, everyone knows the show's about to start and we're about to get the news. So that juxtaposition is lovely. Yeah, it really is. Was there anything for you beyond Vivian that you learned about this world and this show, uh, I suppose, that you, you really took away from the experience? Well, very plainly, I had no idea that she was in any way, Lucille was in any way affiliated with the Communist Party. I mean, that blew my mind. Yeah. I never knew that in at all. Uh, so that, I think that was the big one for me. Yeah, <laughs> I had no and idea. And what a boss <laughs> she was, and, and what a boss she was. And that's more in the research, but what a strong businesswoman she was. Hmm. I didn't know much about that. Yeah, I think that in many ways this movie presents these women that are so iconic in American pop culture and and shows you uh, just how complex they really were. (laughs) Definitely. Right. And it is such a lovely exploration in general of the public and the private. It's just what the public Mm -hmm. and the private means has so many dimensions in this film that it feels kind of like this kind of real crazy sensitive puzzle (laughs) that you get to kind of try to put together throughout. And then finally, let's hear from our colleague Julie Miller and her conversation with Pablo Lorraine and Kristen Stewart about Spencer. Julie has written a lot about Spencer for VF.com, so you can go back and read some of the pieces she wrote based on this interview about how the surprising ending of that movie came together and some of its standout scenes. Um, But here you get to hear Pablo Lorraine and Kristen Stewart really talk to each other about how they made this movie happen, which I found especially fascinating. So let's hear from Pablo Lorraine and Kristen Stewart. Kristen, congratulations on the film. It's so beautiful. Um, I was just telling Pablo I'm a big Royals fan, so I was really primed and ready for this, and just, just it's beautifully done. Um, but again, the Sandringham that she was born on this estate really blew my mind, and she just was subjected to this kind of funhouse mirror of trauma all 
these Christmases together. But I, I know Stephen spoke to some people who worked at the estate and got to interact with Diana. Did you both get the opportunity to speak to them as well? Oh, I, I think it was just him. And and actually, I don't know the details of that conversation, those conversations. Right. I know Kristen. they talked to people that worked in there, and, and I believe he spoke with the chef that was there too, Darren. Darren, uh, but, Darren, yeah. yeah. But I don't know, I don't know details of that. I didn't speak to anybody that actually uh, interacted with her or worked in any of the houses or anything like that, but I was very... I've only met Stephen one time, and it was at the London Film Festival, like when we, when we premiered the movie there. And uh, he was like, "I spoke to people that I, I I can't even disclose their names because they're like discreetly they were discreetly opening themselves to him and like uh, standing on a stage. I was like, I so wanted to drag him off stage and be like, who? <laughs> <laughs> I actually never got that chance." Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Well, it's beautiful to me. I I know that he wouldn't speak about the Sally Hawkins character, but I want to believe in my mind that Diana did have a relationship with someone like that that she could trust. And how beautiful if for all these years that woman or person has been holding on to the story and hasn't sold it. I, I choose to remain that that is, stays true. I mean, I don't know that she's based on one person, but I know for a, for a fact that like she, with proactive intention would go downstairs and ingratiate herself with like the people, the people that work from, from two sort of polarized perspectives. One of which was the, the housekeeper that worked in Charles's house for a number of years and didn't have the best relationship with her. And then her personal protection officer who adored her both corroborated that she would go downstairs and try and eat with the staff and, and that some people found it odd and that it was kind of awkward and that other people were like, you know, really supportive of her and, and genuinely like developed friendships with her. Um, there's this one anecdote where just find this, like just fits into kind of what we were doing. She would go downstairs and just like hack off parts of lamb off a leg of lamb. And she's like, Oh, the food's better down here. They always give you guys the best, the better stuff. Like what they give us up there. We don't, I don't really like it. And she just like would come down and start eating with her hands. And like, some people were like, it was the oddest thing that she would come and do that. And then uh, there were, you know, people sitting next to those people going like, how cool, you know what I mean? Like it, it rubbed some people the wrong way because it just sort of went against protocol. And then other people were so ingratiated and, and kind of in love with the notion um, so I do, I do know for a fact that she, Sally's character, Maggie, uh, there were many Maggie's there were like, along the way, there were people that she, you know, n needed to hold on to, like reached out and needed to sort of like grasp and bring in. Right. I, and I never put together just how traumatic that weekend must've been for her in terms of the weekend being centered around food and these extravagant meals and the 18 million different costume changes you have to have and the the pressure of like losing weights and wanting to hide that did she actually have a dresser like maggie is was that an actual role yeah but like many it's not like that was i don't think that she had somebody stick around for very long i, I mean I, sort of um i think if you were to write a book on gaslighting someone or like the book of master mastermind manipulation would be isolate this person. She was con at any time she became close to someone, they were sort of plucked from her world because anytime she found any sort of substantiating strength, um, things were, uh, shifted in, in a, in a coincidentally <laughs> for her kind of detrimental way. 
Right. It's it's yeah. kind of enraging as an audience member to see this woman we care about so much going through these these circumstances with these people. Um, were you kind of enraged going back reading reading that story? Yeah, like I mean, yeah, I mean, everyone loves to talk about like how I prepared for this role and like you know what type of like research or magic backflip I did to get the accent right. Honestly, like if you have enough time to get an accent right, it's like it's very technical. What really matters is like going through stuff and going embedding truly emotional reactions to things that do exist in real life. If you're doing a story about a person that actually lived and um, things like. Things like people analyzing the hairs on her pillow and and looking at the color of them and being like, oh, was she alone last night? It's like, and then talking about them or talking about those details with other staff members, like, yeah, as if it's like um, anything to do with them at all. And then writing about it years later, like I, things like that are, yeah, of course, I, you know, developed a very genuinely like protective relationship with this person that I obviously never met, but like. You know, and also it's it's a weird thing to talk about because I'm sitting there sort of eating up these details and very thankful that they exist. So on one hand, I'm like, it's nice that these stories were told because actually in kind of attacking her character, they're only revealing the sort of shitty situation that that she was living in. And I'm almost glad that you're that she was like there was like there was she was so taken from but at the same time those details now in retrospect i'm like good everyone tell your story you're only corroborating her goodness right i imagine it must have been a very emotionally fraught experience for you especially given the fame elements of it all and i i read that there were paparazzi circling filming can you talk about that and the meta experience of it was that as emotionally kind of tiring i imagine um, yeah, I mean, like, it's annoying for me, but it's, you know, because I was playing her and then also feeling, you know, like fodder, but in a, in a good way, because I, I, we're making this movie to shine light on this person's life. So it, it's, it's not unwanted and definitely raises the question of like, well, why do you make movies to not take your picture? It's like, no, definitely. I want the picture taken, but you know, not through my bedroom window, you know, right. um, there's kind of no solve for that either. It's like, you know, we make movies and in an effort to connect and reach out and like get as close to other people as we can. She ironically had a relationship with the public that sort of liberated a certain emotionality that was not being satisfied or touched in other more intimate aspects of her life. Therefore she sort of like reached through these lenses and and tried to pull people in and she did, but like, um, it's really hard to control that. She just was kind of um, like used the format to her advantage the best that she could. But at the same time, you can see that she's kind of at sea. And so um, it's awkward. I I don't know how people do that. I I would never, I would never, I would never do that. I guess there's no like, uh, like there's no like smarter way to approach that subject. I wish, I wish that, you know, we would have to be human beings would have to be different for, for this to change. Like, you know, people, we're curious about her and always will be. And, but yeah, like when I'm fine with going out of my house and having people follow me to Starbucks and like get coffee, that's fine. You can take my picture. I make, I'm in a movie. I, I want you to see it, but like our art and like making a movie and, and being behind closed doors and actually having to sew our curtains up. It wasn't even about me. I was like, dude, you take like, you take the element that I'm like a famous actor and then mix it with the, the, you know, the force and uh, sort of, 
monumental sort of symbol that Diana is and you combine those things and it's like oh man they're gonna go wild and they did I, I depersonalized it completely and did feel utterly protective of her in that moment I was like fuck off you know yeah. Oh, it's clear that you both trust each other so much in making this film. Kristen, we see you do things that we haven't really seen you do on screen. Pablo, you chose Kristen to center this whole movie around. How did you guys develop that, that bond before filming? Did you get the chance to have a lot of conversations? On the phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> we... we... We met well. We met in New York once. I remember, and in person, we had dinner, and then it was mm-hmm. yeah. And then the, the pandemic hit, and we were on the phone, just talking, and we discussed all the process on the phone up until we met again. Where was it? In in, ah, in London for a fitting. But yeah, I was. Uh, I think it was a, for a very long time. It was a relationship built on on phone calls. Um, yeah. Like most of the planet, I mean, what do you do? It's it's. Uh, but but I always felt that we 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 saw the same movie and 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 we understood what we were doing in in a very similar way. I I, I don't know. I I couldn't imagine how would this be without Kristen. I, I wouldn't understand the movie. I wouldn't understand anything we did and. It just becomes such a very unique and singular, singular sort of union, and and it's like it's I don't know, it's hard to describe. It's very beautiful. It doesn't happen very often, um, not to me at least. And but yeah, it was an incredible experience, and it also I think you can tell when you see the movie. I think those things are part of what of what you see, um, and and sort of the, the intimate collaboration it's so it's so weird to reflect on stuff like that because i don't think we ever held by a name or articulated things more clearly than than what the movie sort of ascribes like i i um think about the conversations that we had like at the dinner in new york and then the phone calls i think we only had three or four phone calls it, it wasn't like we sat and and, and dissected the script or oh. talked about why we were doing this it it was a, a truly intrinsic thing. I, I wish we had more interesting interview material because like we, um, it's so rare for a director to have the confidence and the capacity to actually handle so many disparate desires and, and funnel them in into their own perspective and, and, and create something that has like, you know, a clear view, a clear viewpoint. I never felt like I uh, needed to like not rock his psyche by like offering another idea or suggesting that we run down the other hall. And he's like, no, we're doing this one thing. Don't like knock me off my track. Like I'm, I'm trying to do something and it's hard to make a movie. It's hard to funnel those desires. I, I always felt like I could just flail and throw myself at him and be like, you need to handle all of my questions and emotions and I know that you can and like I oftentimes have relationships with directors that I I'm kind of protecting them uh in this case I I felt like we were mutually holding each other up and protecting each other but also felt like so free to actually communicate very fresh new spontaneous impulsive ideas that might not go along with the whole and the only way to make something that fucking feels unruly and alive and kind of its own animal is to have the confidence and sort of like the comfortability and chaos, um, to do that. And I 
could tell by the weird pauses in between everything we said on those first phone calls where I was like, I'm going to fill every single second with like fucking yabber. I'm like, you know, I'm fucking, I'm like, Oh yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, let me tell you everything I know about Diana. I'm going to really prove to you that I love her. I'm going to fucking prove to you. Like I know this shit just as much as you do. And he was always just very steady and would go, okay. And I was like, that took a really long time for you to say, okay. Like, and then when we actually got together, I was like, Oh, now that I can see your face, like we actually don't have to talk about anything. You know, I, I wish that I could articulate this better, but it really was just like the right combination at the right time. And then also when we were, I felt that, you know what, what is incredible is that when we were shooting, I would say that 90% of, of what, of, of our takes, we just did, did three of our shots. We did three takes of, of them, not more. And and that happens, it's an, it, that happens because I felt that, that you were, from the very beginning on the first takes already doing it you know there are a lot of actors that wait and they don't they like manage their energy and you were there and when the camera was rolling you were already having all of your energy in it and it was wonderful and it was enough and i you know and Stop. I, and, and i wouldn't want you like i wouldn't want you yeah i don't want you like burn your energy in a way that it felt unneeded you know and 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 that that's part part of the thing is that how do how do you manage a, a sort of an energy that it's it's happening and how you capture that and and how do you know when quickly it's enough you know and and actually I think the second half of the shooting I was barely giving you instructions on what to do was very little it's just a, a physical thing this is where we are come here this is. This is the, like where the light would be, and don't be, don't go there. But that was it. It, it was you. You once you capture it, Claire and I were was filming it. It was it's what for the weird that it sounds. That's how I think it was actually. Oh, I, I love. You. I know, but Pablo, oh, I'm on. only going to say one more thing, and then we'll let you ask a question. <laughs> um, but uh, Pablo could have played this part. And, and did alongside me every single day. There was never a time where I didn't look over my shoulder and see this man sharing every emotion and walking. I mean, literally, we, we took every step together. I did not have to do it alone at all, nor did I ever feel like something I was doing was not being received or was, like, invisible. Sometimes um, the worst thing is, is doing a take or kind of finding your way into a scene and knowing for a fact that it's not, it's not being received. You're not seeing it from the right angle. You're not, you actually, we are incongruent. I, I don't know that what I'm doing, what my interior feeling is, is necessarily existing outside of my body. I don't know that it's like, unless it's being received and seen and captured, you're alone in that. And every single fucking time I looked over, I was like, The best directions that Pablo ever gave me were, I mean, initially chill and stop screaming and running, <clears throat> but literally he would just have a facial expression that was like a line reading, like a full blown, just like, he would just look at me before we did something. I was like, that is it. That's it. Okay, let's go. Like it was, you know, uh, we, we both played her and I, and I don't mean to diminish that. Like, uh, it sounds silly. Like, first of all, it's funny to imagine him in the wig and the dress. because I, I just like, I can't stop. <laughs> But my favorite experiences with directors are not articulate. They are full of a shared, like we shared a heart on this movie. Like I literally looked over every time my heart was pumping out of my chest. I looked over and he was like, Rrr. 
Wow. What was it like to watch the movie together then for that first time? I don't think we've not done that. In Venice. Oh. In Venice was the first time. Yeah, but there were a lot of people there. We couldn't talk. Like, I, I no, mean, yeah. We couldn't talk. Yeah, we couldn't talk. <laughs> wow. That must be so powerful. Well, it sounds like you guys need to do more films together. There has to be like a whole box set. Do you talk? Yeah, I agree. Well, I, I'm so glad that Diana got to have a happy ending in this film. Um, and the Sally Hawkins relationship, I can't talk about enough because those are my favorite relationships in films, like the non-traditional. It doesn't even have to do with the love, the romance at the ending. But the friendship, um, can you talk a little bit about that relationship in the film? Yeah, I mean, she's an interesting character because she kind of feels angelic and a little bit fantastic. I kind of, now, like, I, I've, I think I've seen the movie three times. The more I watch it, I'm like, is this person even real? Like, right. I, I, you know what I mean? Like, um, and she's the person as, like, a, as somebody who didn't play the part and just considers this life and watches the movie um she's exactly who you want diana to have yeah like if i could do anything if i could go back in time or have her like back for a moment and ask her anything i wouldn't i wouldn't ask her anything i would just be like dude can i hang out with you like you want to just like be together for a moment she needed that so badly and like um the part where she's like lol i'm in love with you i think it's just everyone was in love with her like you know she was somebody that was like the most highly rejected sort of sad sack that everyone was in love with. So it's like, you know, the worst thing is when you have so much energy thrust at you, but it's not coming from the right places and you can't receive it. So it sort of just, it, it just, it slips off. And for her to be like, I'm in love with you. And, and for Diana to just start laughing is like, it's absurd and it's funny and it's a little bit of levity in that moment. And there's a this sort of sense of relief. But for me, that scene is just so sad because it's just people kind of missing each other all the time. And like, she wasn't able to feel the impact of that love. Like that's, if she had that, we might not be telling the story. Do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I, yeah, it's just to see somebody go, do you not know? Like you don't, you actually, you know, kind of, but do you really in your heart know how much people love you? And she's like, no. Yeah, I think that's what it is. I think it's, it's just there not only to express her feelings, but to remind her that she was loved, and it's so important because it's it's someone that is so broken for so many reasons that all she needed is to feel the love from others, and 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 it speaks also about you know about how like someone like Diana can be so isolated, you know, and, and someone that we feel that had you know the entire planet looking after her. She felt really lonely and and not loved. So that's what that's what she does, and and it's a very complicated thing because um, I think that acting that scene is really really hard, and it it it's it's it requires someone that carries an incredible amount of truth, like Sally Hawkins. Right. To, when when we were casting and, and looking and thinking for an actress. All I, I, I was thinking, it was on that moment. You know, we need a, a great actress, an incredible person to pull off not just a character, but basically that specific moment. Because it needed, it needs all the humanity, the fragility, the truth, the weirdness. It was just, it, it was all there. And, and then when we did it, 
I remember that you were both laughing, like naturally laughing after each take. And it, it was, it, I know when actors are laughing, acting laugh, right? And it's very hard, yeah. actually. It's very hard. It's like acting drunk. It's really hard. And it's hard to watch. It's disgusting. Yes, oh, my God. Exactly. The fucking fabricated. You're like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, no, it makes me, I, I, I could be in panic <laughs> if I see it. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, but it was like, a, it was a real laugh. And, and sort of, uh, it kind of unleashed the character, the movie, and, 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 and made it so special. And, and, that's, and then the note that she leaves on her car, in all the previous, in the first cuts, it was not there. We took it out at the beginning. Oh, really? Yeah. And then it was like, there's something wrong in here. And then we brought it back and, and it all makes sense. I, I know that now you say, really? I, I know. I, I know. <laughs> it, it feels that it, 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 it needs to be there. And, and it is, of course. Uh, but... But yeah, it was confusing for us in the editing room at the beginning, and, but then it really explained everything, that she was loved, and it's not just me who loves you, that's what she's saying. Oh, <clears throat> just yeah. look around, you know, and, and, and feel it. And so it was, it, was, it was nice. It was nice to, to understand that, and, and working with Sally was such an incredible, she's a, oh my God. It's from another galaxy, that woman is incredible. Yeah, no, she actually is an alien. Like, I, I get these stream of consciousness emails from her because she's done a movie, and I don't think she's done, like, none of the press. She hasn't come to any of the premieres. Um, but I get these emails from her that are written by a fairy. I just feel like um, she's still playing the part because that is her. Like, she's the most supportive, but, like, inarticulate, strange, fucking hilarious freak. She's so cool. I would say, like, when I when, when I watch the movie, I'm like, I can feel all of the, like, in-between laughter. And I wish that we captured the real, like, guttural belly laughs that we were having in between shooting. Because, like, it's there. And I, I love the scene. And I, I, I think it is what it's supposed to be. But there were times where we were, like, manically cackling with each other. Like, we, we really couldn't stop laughing. There were times where I was like, dude, we need to chill and do this scene. I bet that you have so much footage of, footage. I bet you have so much footage of us just sort of, like, not being able to keep it together. Yeah, we do, yeah, of course. But Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's... She's uh, wonderful. Yeah, I, you know what I do? I exchange voice messages with her. And Thank you. so we send little podcasts to each other. We've been doing that for ages. <laughs> I have a yes. podcast with her. Yeah. I, yeah. Get, I get emails in verse. <laughs> oh. How beautiful. There, there was a moment towards the end of the movie where I, like you, thought Maggie was maybe like an invention of like maybe she wasn't real. She was so good um, and such a beam of love and light to Diana. But I, I want to talk to you both about the surreal elements. They were so beautifully done. The pearl sequence is one of my favorite film sequences ever. And it's so unique. How did you figure out what that was going to look like and communicate that with each other? And I'm sure that is a little bit of what you were saying before, where you just had this weird shared understanding. But you, can you talk a little bit about figuring out what those looked like and any references I'm going to go first because my answer will be shorter because I didn't direct this movie. <laughs> um, if, if you if you read the scene now and watch it, they coincide. But I did not think that Pablo was going to have... 
I didn't know that it was going to be as boldly surreal as it ended up being. It could have really had a, you know, depending on how you shoot something like that, you can kind of suspend a moment and flit through a fantasy kind of by just looking at the necklace and like having one sort of flash cut of a crunch. And then we're back immediately. He's like, eat the whole fucking necklace. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I was, I was so surprised even also having shot it and, and, um, been there for every moment. It was the first thing that I saw cut together. I think like on the movie, he, he showed some footage just to sort of give an idea. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. It's, yeah, right. It's the first. Yeah. yeah. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe, uh, how far he was going. It wasn't, it wasn't like a momentary suggestion of, of a nightmare. It was a full fledged, like, please wake me up moment. And, uh, yeah, I, yeah. Could, could have been done differently. I, I'm so impressed with how, how, just how far he shoved his head through that plate glass. If but we, now you go. Wait, what was the pearl that you actually ate? Chocolate. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but don't, don't put that on the don't kill it, please. Don't put that on your chocolate. <laughs> it was it was yeah, that was chocolate means balls, right? That's what it was. Um Yeah, like M like M Ms, like really hard M Ms. <laughs> um <clears throat> It's 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 it, it's a very important sequence because it's the first time that we're changing the rules of the movie. The movie has a, per, a, a perspective that it's all over the place. We see we see you know Charles arriving. We see the Queen from afar. We see Diana lost and getting into the cafe, and then we see this, and then we slowly get closer to her, and then we talk to. To them, we go to the kitchen. We, we, we're with her and the kids, and then she goes into this place, and the audience gets into her mind and starts to experience what she's experiencing. So the movie sort of gets inside of her until the end, from that scene and on. And so it was very relevant. Actually, in the script, Anne Boleyn was not. It was not at that table. And it was a whole thing to bring her because, of course, with the quarantine and, and Amy Manson was very generous and she came like two weeks and waited for just that shot that we felt it was relevant. And, and yeah, it just changed the, the game. And, and what I also think that it, 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 was, it was a good thing is that we discovered that in these places they usually have a live quartet. In, in, in the same castle that we were working, The, there was a, there was a space up there, so the, the the music would be there playing, but they were hidden, right? So they, they wouldn't even see them. Mm -hmm. We brought them down and put them there, and then I and and then Johnny brought that music that I think is a very good part of the experience, and that it starts as a very sort of disappear like music, right? That it's there for the royals while they eat and talk. So it has to be played really low and it's like a very mellow and sweet and almost invisible melody that becomes stronger and then stronger and weirder and weirder. And then all these discordant melodies come on board and we played it really loud and then we open it in the in, in, in the in terms of the speakers and it, it just We we got almost deft, you know, the, cutting it and working it, and and I 
felt that it was important that it, it would be as loud as, you know, was technically possible. Yeah. And it goes it also, really loud. Because of that moment where we fall into her for the first time and you realize that the sort of like visual vocabulary for her fantasies is not going to be tricky. It's actually just going to be incredibly real and you're never really going to know where you stand um, in terms of reality or fantasy or nightmare. She feels like she's got tinnitus if it's chasing her. Like you, you can't get away from this sort of screech. And um, I love that. I just think uh, the sort of recurring melodies as well and how they get stretched and sort of shoved into... Yeah. different pace, paces it just I'm like shut that shit off like it starts to drive you fucking crazy and as much as I think the music is beautiful it's just at times it's it becomes so vicious it is such an assault oh. I love it yeah right the music and the costumes are so incredibly beautifully beautifully done can you talk a little bit uh, about those About um, uh, yeah, Jacqueline Duran. Like the the green the green dress in particular, the silk uh, dress. The green dress. dress. Yeah, we we actually had a different one that we we couldn't cleared for legal reasons, and then later in the in the in the process came you know the necessity to do a new one out of scratch, and it was a big decision of what was the color of that silk, and because we had a green. I was. Green wallpaper. I was despondent. Yeah. I was so fucking upset about the pink dress. Like, it's so funny that it ends up being like, I mean, I know that you made this decision in context and there was green soup and she is very sick. And actually, in retrospect, it seems fucking crazy that that wasn't the plan the whole time. And green wallpaper. But when we found out the that wallpaper's we, green too. Yeah. I didn't know that. But yeah, dope. Um, there's just, like, the whole movie is very red. Her favorite color was pink. I wanted to feel this sort of delicacy. Like she had this fleshy thing going that everyone else was ignoring. And I thought the pink was just so perfect. And now I'm like, you fucking idiot. Fuck the pink. It was obviously supposed to be green, but carry on. Uh, wh why couldn't they get the pink for legal reasons? It was a design copyright yeah. situation. Wow. Um, earlier, you guys talked about Kristen feeling free to explore and make suggestions. What's an example of one of kind of the happiest accidents that resulted from just an idea spontaneously on set? But there are many, I think. It's a, I, I, it's a, it's a way of working and understanding the character. It's just, it's like, I would bring it's like uh, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah I think it's. I, but I'm, I'm sure that maybe you, you could remember something more specific, Kristen. But I remember that it's just. Like, it was like a. It's like a systematic thing that I believe we had during during the, the whole process. Um, it's just strange to have something feel so precise and yet so sprawling. Like I've. It is. It's a. It's the dream goal. But like it, it rarely happens. I think if we're going to be specific about one thing, just to like try and answer your question respectfully. Um, Pablo operated a lot of the movie and it was primarily in the moments where we're very, very tight and it's roving and it's on 16 millimeter and, and it just feels when I watch the movie, I'm like, we were together in that in those moments. And um, there's a seat that's first time. No, it's not the first time. At some point, I go into the bathroom, I throw up, I stand up, I look in the mirror, I sort of slump down this wall. 
and in the movie it's it's um truncated they had to take i mean you had to cut out a little bit of the middle part but when i watch the movie i feel like that is like i just i'm, I'm watching people juggle like I, I i can't fucking believe the sort of timing and the and the breath that we shared you can't plan that shit that could have been shot a number of ways i think we did one very long take and stopped i was like i don't know how you're gonna cut this together it's like a 10 minute it's like a 10 minute take of we did, just we did someone breathing in the mirror but two um, takes of 11 minutes <laughs> from one from one yeah. i mean <laughs> from one angle one take and then the other angle another take and i was seated in the For floor you remember yeah. yeah, I know, but I mean, you were seated on the floor and then you like came up with yeah. me and then I turned into this profile. I just think like we basically did five setups in 11 minutes within one, just you holding the yeah, camera and kind yeah. of like living and breathing in the thing. Like, I just swapped I, the sides. That's what it, 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 it was one side and then the other. That's exactly after, yeah. after, after, after the dinner that the, uh, when you're throwing out the, the pearls that yeah. you never had, but yeah. Yeah. I guess that didn't answer your question specifically. I just like if I'm going to remember something that felt so perfectly on par with what we wanted, right? But was literally just us being like, yeah. There was no planning that. It was. It was. So, that's my favorite. I want the. I want both of those takes, 11 minutes long, on a hard drive. I just want them. <laughs> I want to have them on my computer. I want them to exist in and of themselves. Because like that for for me and him like. I love Claire. We had a fucking dance going the whole time, but when Pablo picked up the camera, it just felt like, okay, Pablo took his mask off. <laughs> I can see his face. It's right there. It it changed things. And yeah. Uh, well, it was such a special movie for me to watch, and it sounds like it was really special for you both to make. So thank you for taking the time to share some of that with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. It was very nice. Of course. Yes. Well, have a good rest of the day, and congratulations. Thank you. That does it for this week's show. We hope you all have a wonderful and restful new year. We will see you in the new year. We'll be back because uh, award season will be back in full swing. Uh, in the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com and on Twitter at LittleGoldMen. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rye Laws. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. And David. David Canfield, 97. You can also text us at joinsubtext.com slash littlegoldmen or text 213-513-7169. We love hearing from you. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best reason that Joanna and Mike are no longer on the show goes to Richard Lawson. Their kids were in love and it was causing a lot of tension. Mm -hmm.